The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Vicky. Vicky, look at me. I'm going to crush you. Pierce, stop that. I'm going to eat your brains, Vicky. I'm going to slurp them right out of that melon you call a head. A reminder to all candidates, your microphones are currently on. They better be, because I'm on fire up here. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, April 21st, 2016. I'm Bob Met. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on WBCQ 5130. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be You'd almost think that we might be talking about Donald Trump today with an opening like that, and you would be right. Isn't that so, Robert? Later on in the show, yes. Yeah. Well, Trump always thinks he's on fire, but he certainly has set voters on fire if it's not him. And some see him as a great threat to democracy itself, as we've touched upon in the recent past. But I think there are far worse threats to our democracy than Donald Trump, and they're already in elected office. In the second half of our planned program today, I'll be taking a look at the degeneration of the democratic political process into what I think is a joke, even though it's no joke and shouldn't be funny, except in the sense of sarcasm and irony. (laughs) More on that a little later on. Robert, what do you got on tap for us today? Well, first, Bob, I'll talk about uh, some feedback we received from Michael regarding a comment I made a few shows ago. And in the second quarter, I'll be talking about national identity and the importance of national borders. Sounds like something that will segue into my topic as well, where I'll be talking about the borders of ideas within nations and the political party process. But first, let's remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ 5130, or visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Well, again, to begin with, Bob, let's talk about our feedback we received from Michael. He was responding to uh, show 441, where we talked about blacked-out history, the N-word, at ease with fear, and ignoring the ignorance. And I think it was my part about at ease with fear, when we talked about uh, fear and uh, the media's hype and the media terrorizing people with their fear-mongering, where I ended off by saying something to the effect that teachers are to blame for a lot of the fear we have because people can't identify what to be afraid of or not. And of course, Michael took exception to that because I didn't really qualify my remark and sort of lumped all the teachers in together. And I I like his feedback because it brings to mind what I always try to do on this show, which is to be precise. This is a show about epistemology, concepts, ideas, words, definitions. And context, yes. So when somebody challenges me to say that, oh, you weren't precise in this qualification, I actually like that. I want to be precise as I can, although that's not always possible, especially when you're talking off the cuff. I'll read you Michael's letter. He says, You say no teachers are out there teaching students to reason. For shame. You should know better than that. I imagine you know about Montessori, Lisa Van Damme, Marva Collins at least, Maybe you're generalizing or exaggerating to make a point, but the state of education and of general cognitive function today is so bad 
and is so important that we very, very much need to promote the good. Teachers training students to reason, need, and deserve support and recognition today more than ever. And what's more, they need financial backing to expand and reach more minds. Our culture and our happiness depend on it. Improving education is critical and is the number one thing we need to do. Please do not ever again neglect to support and to call for support, moral and financial, of people like the Laporte Academy, the Van Damme Academy, History at Our House, English Grammar Revolution. I am out here fighting too, alone, limited support, limited recognition. We cannot have much impact when we are ignored. We expect it from the irrational, but not from those who should know better. If you want a more rational society, isn't education the place to start? All the best, Michael. Now, just to let you know here, Michael apparently is a founder of a private school in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's his letter. Now, I did write a well, response to Well, one to of his him. comments almost confirmed what you were saying, though. He talked about the, the, the terrible state of the education system, if not individual teachers. And oh, yes. Yeah. That's, no, what I, you were, that's what you're talking about. Of course, and I think that we're in agreement mostly. Mm-hmm. It's just that I, I, I think he was picking on uh, the fact that I, I picked on teachers without qualifying my, my remarks. You know... You can't always Almost, qualify in the, in the context of doing a radio show like this. Sometimes. No, no, no. And I and I explain that in my response to Michael. But what I sometimes rankle at is whenever I hear pundits on the radio or television talking about teachers, they're always qualifying it by saying there are always good teachers out there. I'm not teacher bashing. Well, you know something. I know a lot of teachers. I've been in the business. Uh, as a school trustee for a long time, and I'm just tired of not teacher bashing. Teachers deserve to be bashed, mm-hmm. you know, but not all teachers. Right. You know, and I... And it I'm, works both ways. You can't have yeah. it... See, they want the blanket totally one way or totally the other mm-hmm. way, and there's nothing in between. Yeah. Well, anyway, here's my response, and I cover most of these points in my response to Michael, so I'll read you that letter I, I wrote to him in return. Hello, Michael. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your comments. You are indeed correct that there are good teachers doing good work and that my comments were crafted in order to drive home a point, a point I've been driving home for many years, that being that the state of education today is abysmal and is the cause of many of our societal ills. Our radio show, while reaching an international audience, is very often biased towards our current locale, which is London, Ontario, Canada. My criticisms of teachers on Just Right has always been directed towards those in the public education system, particularly in Ontario, which is the system I know best, having been a trustee on two local school boards for a total of six years. Now, while I strive for precise language, that's not always possible on a radio show of timed length, and especially when an offhand comment, like the one you object to, is not the central theme of the argument, but a related example of that theme. In a more perfect world, I should have qualified my characterization of teachers to the vast majority of those in the state-run public education system of which I am most familiar. Things may be a bit different in the United States, but in Ontario, fully 95.1% of all students attend public schools. Of the remaining 4.9%, many attend schools teaching their students that the world is 6,000 years old and that evolution is only a theory and just as believable as the biblical version of life on earth. That leaves a very small number of schools I would consider worthy of my praise and support, although they do exist. I'm indeed familiar with Montessori schools, and my children 
have had first-hand experience with their fine teaching methods. I'm also slightly familiar with Lisa Van Dam's fine work as an educator, and have, although I'm not familiar with Marva Collins. As you correctly point out, good educators deserve praise and support. But on this particular episode of the show, there was no time to qualify my remarks or to expand on such a topic. It wasn't the, the central theme. I have in the past praised those educators who are doing a good job, including those using the Montessori method, and I direct your attention to show number 227 of November 4th, 2011, where I went into much greater detail criticizing those educators who deserve criticism and praising those who deserve praise. Here's the link to that episode, and I gave him the link to our episode uh, show 227. You can find mm. that online. I also make available my notes, which acted as my script uh, for that episode, should you find them easier and quicker to digest. I've attached them as a PDF file. By the way, most of uh, what I say on this show, at least, um, is scripted. A lot of it. I mean, my comments right now are not, but a lot of it is. And um, maybe sometime in the future, we'll have them all properly transcribed and printed. Well, we and always come available in. For we always come in partially scripted. You can't just yeah. come in blank without a plan on what oh. you're doing for the show, or you or we'll be sitting here just staring at each other for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> this is not that kind of show. No. no. Anyway, I ended off by saying I appreciate the work you do as an educator, and Bob and I certainly appreciate your comments. We'll take the time in a future episode today when we deal with listener feedback to respond to your comments on the air. Thank you again, Michael, for your criticism. I think it is accurate. Um, I do um, try to be precise. Um, I try when, when time allows and when it's necessary for the argument to qualify remarks. But when you have the vast, vast majority of teachers doing what I consider to be an abysmal job, then I think that qualifications sometimes uh, sully the importance of bashing where it's ne- when it's necessary and mm. criticizing when it's necessary. So I didn't want to water down my criticism of teaching. Now, just in case we get another letter, <laughs> you're, not, you're also not saying that every teacher in the public school system is a bad teacher. Uh, no, I have met some teachers who actually uh, who've told me that they close the door to their classroom and teach properly. I know that. And they've gone through the education, um, education system themselves to become teachers. Like here in London, it would be Althouse College, for example. And um, they disagreed with uh, what they were taught and uh, to, to how to teach. They closed the doors to their classroom and teach properly. And kudos to them. I think that they are the unsung heroes of the education system. But unfortunately, they are few and far between. And so the rest of them, the rest of them are just teaching things that um, are destroying the ability of children and students to think properly. And I think they need to be taken to task. Anyway, that's my comments. Uh, we're going to have a little break here. And when we come back, I'll talk about nations and the importance of borders. They say that if you're a teacher, you only have to make a difference in one child's life to make all worthwhile. So if I was a teacher, I would do that on the first day and then I could just relax. (laughs) 
people out there in our nation don't have maps, and uh, I believe that our ed education, like such as in South Africa and uh, the Iraq, everywhere like such as, and I believe that they should, uh, our education over here in the U.S. should help the U.S. or should help South Africa and should help the Iraq and the Asian countries. In that young woman's defense, she's actually quite intelligent. She was just thrown by the question and got nervous. Yeah, I was thrown by the question, too. A fifth of Americans can't find the United States on a map? Is that true? Objection. This witness works at the National Geographic. She the National Geographic has done two studies to determine the geographic literacy of young Americans. Isn't that right? Yes. Could you give us the results, please? I sobbed. Big, heaving sobs where your shoulders go up and down. Uh, the results of the test, not your reaction to it. Half couldn't locate New York State on a U.S. map. Even after Katrina, one-third couldn't show you Louisiana. The Pacific Ocean? Goose egg from 29%. The Pacific Ocean, for God's sakes. And where's Japan? 58% don't know. England? Head scratcher for 69%. Did you survey the geographic literacy of young adults in other countries? Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, Mexico, Sweden, England. How'd we do comparatively? Second to last. We beat Mexico. For a nation to exist means that it has its own identity, separate and different from that of every other nation. Just as there are contrasting differences between such things as right and wrong, plaintiff and defendant, cop and robber, uh, liberal and conservative, Canada and the United States, nations have differences. The identity of a nation is often thought of as being primarily a consequence of such things as race, language, and culture. But I believe that these characteristics are not essential to nationhood. They're a throwback to a time when race, language, and culture rarely mixed. The essential characteristics of a nation is its laws. The essential characteristic is an ab uh, abstraction and not something as concrete as the type of clothes the people are used to wearing or the language they speak or their ancestry. Laws are what define nations, or should I say that laws are what should define a nation in a perfect world. A trip to any used bookstore will demonstrate the fluid nature of nationhood as you discover maps and globes depicting polities which no longer exist, such as the Holy Roman Empire, a vast empire of many cultures and language, but one law. Or more recently, East Germany, which shared interesting language with West Germany, but was separated by war into two distinct nations, following two distinct sets of laws. And today, of course, there are still many countries with borders under dispute, such as with Israel and its neighbors, China and Taiwan, and even Canada and the United States, and Canada and Denmark, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. It was only in 1992 that Canada fixed its maritime boundaries with France over the disputed territory surrounding the islands of Saint-Pierre and Miquelon. And as humanity spreads out across the globe, these border disputes are not simply matters of which government has sovereignty over which piece of land or water, they are, in many cases, crises of identity. Ask any Kurd if he or she considers the lines which define Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran, the way they were drawn, with any justice as to their identity, not simply as a culture, but as a people who choose not to abide by the laws of either Turkey, Syria, Iraq, or Iran. Ask the people in Crimea if they'd rather obey the laws of Russia or Ukraine. 
The dust is far from settled when it comes to defining nations and political identities. Let's now get to the crux of why I wish to talk about nation-states, borders, and national laws. With the open immigration policies of most EU countries, the question of national sovereignty is on the top of the political agenda and threatens to break up that quasi-political identity. England, France, Sweden, Germany, and Norway are losing their identity as nation-states not because of the influx of Arabs or people who are culturally different, but because they are allowing the laws of their nations to change to accommodate the people from these lands. They're allowing Sharia laws to exist in parallel to secular laws. This capitulation is just as much damaging to the identity of a nation as if planes were bombing their cities and tanks were rolling over their countryside. The end result of a war is the change of the laws of the land. Sharia law is changing the identity of most European nations, and it is a cause for concern. Aside from the acceptance of Sharia law, there are other laws which have been adopted to accommodate the influx of Muslims into Europe. Laws prohibiting religious denigration and so-called hate speech laws are being adopted and frequently used to prevent open discussion of Islam. They are rarely, if ever, used to prevent the denigration of Christianity, but are used to instill fear into anyone who would criticize Islam and denounce those Muslims who advocate the adoption of Sharia law. As the laws of a nation change, so the identity of the nation changes. Now, in the United States, the refusal of the current administration to defend its southern border from the passage of millions of immigrants who enter illegally has become a topic which might affect the outcome of the next presidential election. GOP candidate hopeful Donald Trump has said this to say about the borders of his country, quote, One, a nation without borders is not a nation. There must be a wall across the southern border. He went on to add to his definition of a nation with, A nation without laws is not a nation. Laws passed in accordance with our constitutional system of government must be enforced. And finally, he defined nation having this characteristic. A nation that does not serve its own citizens is not a nation. Any immigration plan must improve jobs, wages, and security for all Americans. Now, with these first well, who, two who points... Who is that? Donald Trump? That was Donald Trump, yeah. Uh, very interesting, because just the way you read that this time, mm-hmm. the comment of the wall did not come across to me the way the media has portrayed it at all. I didn't hear a literal wall like they talk. I heard a very figurative wall. No, actually, he means it quite literally. Did he mean it literally? He, he meant it literally. And then he goes on on his website to oh. say that, and the Mexicans should pay for it. Oh, for heaven's <laughs> sakes, because that's how it came across. But the way you just read it there, yeah. it sounded more figurative, and you're talking about law. Context, no. again, see? Okay. Yeah, no, he definitely but, means yeah, a wall. Okay. <laughs> Is he a wall? Just like know. the East Germans <laughs> meant a wall. Okay. Now, while his first two points I would agree with... Uh, Parenthetically, his third point, with the exception of security, has the government as a player in the economy of the people, which is not a proper function of any government, and certainly not something which would be a defining characteristic of a nation, in my opinion. An immigration plan most certainly does not have to improve jobs and wages for all Americans. Jobs and wages are, or at least should be, the purview of the people, not the government. With respect to his first point, which you just pointed out, Bob, there need not be a wall across the southern border of the United States. The very notion of a country, such as the United States, putting up such a physical barrier to immigration is absurd. 
That nation, the United States, was a nation built on immigration and still should be. A border does not necessarily have to be a physical obstruction to movement. Precisely. That's, that's how I was thinking of it. Yeah, I knew that we'd be on the same wavelength with this. It's sufficient in many cases that it simply be a line on a map. If massive immigration is not orchestrated to change the laws of the land, but instead is a pattern of choices made by people willing to move to and live in another country, and at the same time abide by the laws of that country, with no intention to change those laws, then open immigration is a good thing and not something to be concerned about. If, however, as in the case of Muslim immigration into Europe, the intent of the immigration is not to adopt the laws of the country they are moving to, but to change those laws, then a physical barrier may sometimes be necessary. Most of the times this barrier would take the form of a, you know border agents at crossing points. In uh, the case of Israel, it may actually take the shape of a physical wall. And I, you know, I have no problem with Israel actually erecting a physical wall to prevent uh, terrorists. Well, they have a very real threat coming over their border. That's right, yes. Immediate. (laughs) Yes, I don't think the same applies to uh, Mexico, however. The influx of Mexicans in the United States is an attempt, uh, you know, uh, is not an attempt to change the United States. And as such, I say, let them come. The racial nature of the U.S. may change. Even some of the cultural habits of the United States may change as a result of millions of Mexicans making that country their home. But as long as, uh, as long as the laws of the countries don't change, then the essential identity of the country is not changed. And that's the important thing. Remember what I said at the beginning. Properly, a nation is not a nation simply because of its race, its language, its culture. It's a nation because of its laws, its legal system, its legal history. The fact that some people with a different hue of skin or speaking Spanish instead of English or eating tortillas instead of hamburgers comes across your border (laughs) is not cause for concern over the identity of your nation as a nation. One of these days in the far distant future, when and if science and art and politics evolve to the point where humanity no longer needs national boundaries, when every jurisdiction, which was once a nation, properly identifies the right of the individual to his own life, liberty, and property, perhaps at that time, 10,000 years from next Tuesday, will be unnecessary. Uh, it will be unnecessary to distinguish one area of the world from another as regards to the nation state. But until we reach that imaginary point in the future, if ever, with the current level of discord and irrationality so prevalent in humanity, borders are absolutely essential. Borders are essential for those nations which have laws, which, to any degree, protect the life, liberty, and property of the individual. The integrity of nations, like those of Western Europe, Canada, and the United States, are essential if there are to be places on this planet where people can be free. You know, borders for nations play the same role as a border does on your property line. It separates interests. Exactly. And and allows each interest to function independently without interfering with the other one. That's why private property is such an incredible invention. But uh, you know, we, we wouldn't we wouldn't worry about other countries having different laws if they all had similar rights, and the rights were the same of individuals in all the countries, and they could administer them minusculely differently in Precisely. so many ways. Precisely, that's what yeah. I was getting into at the close. There is that once you reach that level where people are so evolved politically that. 
we understand and protect people's individual rights, life, liberty, and property, the nation states may dissolve. But I think we're we're, no, we're, we're millennia going, away from such a thing. In fact, we're going the opposite direction, as we'll take a look at next. Some very disturbing developments in the reorganization of the federal Liberal Party in Canada under the direction of Liberal Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And quite frankly, Robert, if these ideas came out, out from some other source... I don't know if I'd be able to take them seriously without thinking someone was playing a joke on me or another April Fool's joke like we were talking about last week. Uh, but already our political elections are not so unlike what, you, you know, you might hear in the, in the, in the presidential race for uh, Greendale Community College, which we'll hear later on in the show. But in any case, that's what I'll be taking, about, or taking a look at after we return from this break. Back after this. Say what you like about the monarchy. I find it refreshing to live in a world where plastic American vulgarity has been replaced by traditional British pride in craftsmanship. Not to mention British engineering. Fascinating. George Washington was hanged in 1779, a mere footnote in British colonial history. Well, that is fascinating. Without the inspiration provided by the Founding Fathers, none of history's other revolutionary movements were successful. This world is run by a handful of monarchies. You mean the French Revolution never happened? The Russian Revolution? The Chinese Revolution? Well, what about the sexual revolution? It's always been my favorite. Yeah! Oh, we're not getting anywhere. Let's take a break. Well, look at the bright side, folks. In our world, this beautiful glade is downtown Oakland. I can't believe this Prince Harold guy. What an idiot. He only likes women under 20 or over 60. And look at this. He's quoted as saying that poor people have chosen to be poor because otherwise they'd be rich. Hmm. Now remember what we agreed. We are just tourists. Let's not be judgmental. Yeah, well, just look at the guy. He looks like Alfalfa. I mean, how does a guy like that get to be king anyway? Just the army. No, no. On the contrary. In fact, history shows that military elites tend to depose rather than impose a monarchical hierarchy. No, I mean, it's the army. The problem with the Australian conflict is, it's an undeclared war. A war run by politicians playing for a stalemate. It's likely to go on for a long time without resolution, and a lot of good people are going to die. I'm not advising you not to go. I'm just urging you to follow your conscience. Yes, well, that was remarkably stupid of you, Miss Wade. You know nothing of this world, nothing of their war. The proper position should have been no comment. Some truths are universal. I mean, besides, if, if we can bring some of the things that we've learned on our world to parallel cultures, then I say go for it. I mean, we can't just slide from place to place aimlessly. We have to get involved. Don't tell me what to do. Oh. I'm not your student. Save it, you two. Don't tell me what to do. Well, that's exactly the purpose of having electoral debates for left-wingers. They want to tell everybody what to do and to justify that on the basis that the majority supports them. 
telling everyone else what to do. Just follow your conscience, she says. You know, that's a nice, nice piece of advice if you're conscious. <laughs> but most people are not conscious of their political environments, even though they might be very conscious of other things going on around them. And simply having a voice in a free society <clears throat> is the most powerful thing that any democracy can offer you, your freedom of speech. As soon as politicians want to organize the opinions of people, their individual power of influence is severely diminished since it will have to be subjected to the numerical majority. Which brings me to our topic of the day, and you can almost hear the clock ticking on the political time bomb we're walking into here. What I'm about to cite is part of a much larger trend being entertained in political circles about the process of how we vote in elections or decide the great issues of public interest. In the name of democracy, we are witnessing the destruction of just about every fundamental principle upon which any real democracy can possibly be founded. And Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, stands at the forefront of leading the change against, ironically, our liberal democracy, a concept supported explicitly by our frequent guest on the show, Salim Mansour, even though he describes himself as conservatively minded. Isn't that interesting? Because in the context described, those are not contradictory ideas. You can have a conservative state of mind in a liberal democracy. But this was brought to my attention thanks to Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever, who sent me this uh, a copy of this article taken from uh, McLean's magazine and written on April 3rd of this month uh, by Joan Biden of this Canadian press. And the headline reads, don't know if you're familiar with this, Robert, Trudeau promotes wide open liberal party, no more membership privileges. Subheader reads, anyone with free membership can participate in things like policy development and leadership selection. Wow. <laughs> yes, I was familiar with it. Yeah. And you know what? It, it intrigued me. I went down to the conservative, federal conservative website. Mm -hmm. To become a member of the federal conservative, you give them your name, address, and credit card information. If you go onto the federal liberal website, they ask you for your name, email, uh, and then your gender your language, and are you an Aboriginal? What a bunch of racists. <laughs> you know, right off the bat, they want to know your race. They want to know your, your privilege. They want to know your victimization. And well, the conservatives, that hey, anybody can be a conservative. That explains so much. I didn't even know that, Robert. I should have checked that out because just the idea on, on its surface is something's wrong with it, seriously. And then they say that you must adhere to the policies of the, the Liberal Party of Canada. Is there a link to that there? Nope. No, because they're still what writing. Are the they're writing their constitution. That's yeah. that's what this is about. And this is out of Ottawa. Justin Trudeau is pushing a proposed new constitution for the Liberal Party of Canada, uh, transforming the party from an exclusive club into a wide open political movement. Can you imagine? It would do away entirely with the long held principle that only dues paying, card carrying members are entitled to take part in party activities. Indeed, there would no longer be any party members. Instead, anyone willing to register with the party for free would be eligible to participate in policy development, nomination of candidates, party conventions, and the selection of future leaders. The proposal builds on a change adopted by the Liberals four years ago when they agreed to let anyone willing to sign up for free as a party supporter vote in the leadership contests. Party President Anna Ganey said Liberals will be asked to approve the proposed new constitution at the party's national convention in May, which is next month. 
And while the liberals look to further open up their party to all comers, the conservatives are going in the opposite direction, as you pointed out. For current Tory leadership contest, only those who've been party members for six months will be eligible to vote, and the membership fee has been hiked to $25. That's a sharp contrast to what the liberals are doing. And Trudeau championed the need for a constitutional overhaul, saying, quote, we need to be courageous and we need to show once again that the Liberal Party is not afraid to challenge the status quo, even if it means breaking with our own traditions, he said. And Canadians are counting on us to keep building and modernizing and opening up our movement, etc., etc. So they're going to have a single constitution replacing 12 other constitutions that they have, he says, and Ganey, the president, says the process does not respond to the pace of life in the digital age, so the new constitution will allow flexibility for technology to engage all registered liberals. What the hell does this all mean? It's, it's mentally ill on the surface of it, Robert. I don't know what to say. They're destroying their, their identity. When we were talking yeah. just recently about national identity, yes. they're destroying their political identity. Well, this is not an identity crisis. This is, an, this is identity suicide. suicide. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and so... You know, he's pushed the constitutional change. They want to redesign the party. They've asked 2,100 people to sign a survey, and they're all in support of it, those 2,100 people, and um, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just like trying to see here what else. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> the President Ganey says, well, the party's wasted a lot of time and energy renewing memberships. We don't want to spend time doing that anymore. You know what they're saying by, by saying cow. that? First of all, if their membership is free and they want to mm-hmm. waste time of renewing yeah. memberships and all that, they're saying that they don't care about their membership. Anybody can be a member. It doesn't matter who you are or whatever. Um, you can be a conservative and vote on a leadership You're debate. You're getting ahead of me, Robert. Oh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I was going to let you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, here's a question I have. Why even maintain the pretense of even having a political party in the first place if you're going to be doing something like this. All you really have is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the chaos and entropy of public opinion to serve as as his imaginary method of giving people a voice in the background, right? That's what he's doing. It's a complete meltdown. It's a complete degeneration of the whole field of politics, political parties, and governance. I never thought it would be possible for a person in elected office in the Western world to be so juvenile. I, I'm, I'm being kind with my words. Infantile is Infantile is almost where we're at here. Or, or so substantively evil, which I hate to go there. Mm. Uh, that's the only other option you have. So let's call them stupid or, or, or ignorant because that's the only kind thing I can say about a plan like this. When Trudeau boasts about this process as being a way to modernize our movement... To what movements are he referring to? If, it, if it's a wide open, anybody can say what they want. Does he, he doesn't, how can he even know what his movement is till everybody has decided what it is? And if you already have a movement in mind, then what the heck do you need opinions for? <laughs> right? To determine the nature of your movement? And if everybody gets a say on determining the nature of this zero-sum political party, talk about none of the above, <laughs> then what is there to modernize? Uh, this is talk from an imbecile. It's moronic. It's, it's stupidity with a double S. I call it quantum politics, <laughs> where you have your prime minister appear to be both a genius and a moron at the exact same time. And maybe it's like Schrodinger's cat. Yeah. Well, under his own proposed plan, he's no leader of anything. If he actually believes that this mob rule principle is, is valid, then things are far worse than we can possibly imagine for Canada. He's a man without a vision. 
a man without any clear direction, a man who, who in adopting a party based on followership rather than leadership is either one of two things, as I say, completely incompetent or completely and totally in control, in the negative sense of that word. Basically, the liberal plan essentially involves setting up a website. <laughs> it's like you said, where everybody can vent and participate in the democratic discussion, while Trudeau can, on the basis of such a process or non-process, pretty well justify any dysfunctional, immoral, or destructive plan he has for the country. All he's got to do is say, like he's saying now, my 2,100 supporters support me. Hello, there's 30 million of us out here. <laughs> But it's not only his own party he's destroying. He has the same plan in mind for Parliament and the voting process itself. The plan, of course, is to reduce the whole process to majoritarianism, majority rule, which in practice always means one or a very few rules, something quite different from the principle of democracy itself. Now, Ontario Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever, who originally brought this story to my attention, was really right on the mark when he wrote along with it, he quote, one nationally centralized party with no rights-bearing members, everyone just gives input to, you know, the deaf and the blind and anyone who's a member without having any real authority. Who has it? The leader. One Canada, one party, one leader. Where have I seen this before? <laughs> End quote, All right? Well, of course, from just about every dictator the world has ever known. The oneness of the collective, of oppression, the oneness of poverty, the oneness of eventual lawlessness and outright despair. One wonders if Trudeau is just using his so-called Liberal Party members or if he just regards them with other contempt, which is what you were suggesting right at the beginning, Robert. I, 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 I can almost or maybe hear, he's doing both. I can almost hear the background in the voice of a Borg from Star Trek. <laughs> we are the Liberal Party. You will be assimilated, you know. It's, it's I actually, that analogy went through my mind. You know, Trudeau is appealing to the lowest moral denominator he can find. People who would join a party like the one he's proposing are dangerous people. I, you know, I wouldn't think of joining a party like that. They're going to be threatening everyone's life, liberty, and property. Because, you know, they just vote for anything they want, not what is right to do for government. They don't even know what government is anymore. Membership without a price means exactly what it says and what it offers. Your membership has no value, and neither does your opinion unless you pay. That's the way the world works, folks. That's right. In fact, the more members the Liberal Party allows in this way, the less each individual member's influence will be. In a party of a few hundred, well, you're one of a few hundred. In a party of one million, you are one in a million. Good luck to your voice counting. <laughs> and even the million have no influence because a million's just a number. It's, it's not an existent. It's a statistic. Right. And, of course, all of these considerations fall by the wayside if you actually already have a party that stands for something, some value that each and every member and supporter of the party can rally around and get behind and support, knowing that that value will not be compromised in the political arena. When you've got that, then, you know, it, you know there's no such thing, actually, as a political party that doesn't stand for something, even if they say they don't, even if they're de denying it outright. Because in this regard, uh, Trudeau is doing the same thing as Patrick Brown, leader of the Progressive Conservatives in Ontario, who denies that he's ideological and who's open to any and all ideas from abroad. The same crap, right? Both of these guys are completely and extremely ideologically and totally on the left of the spectrum. That's where the, I'm not ideological, let's open the doors to everybody. That's a left-wing philosophy, totally, through and through. And 
you know, they're all on the left of the spectrum, which is what they don't want anyone else to recognize because they know what the left has been associated with in the past. So they don't want that association. And that's why in the end, this whole give the people a voice ideology is always a fraud. It's a democratic fraud used to gain the support of otherwise unwilling victims based on false information they're given. And since the only political principles worth fighting for in politics are the protection of the rights to life, liberty, and property, all socialist plans to do the opposite must, by their nature, be sold on fraudulent grounds. You know, by the way, without membership dues or fees, how does a Liberal Party plan to finance itself? No mention. I smell another fraud built in on that answer. Steal the support from all the people, even if they hate liberals and what they stand for. And that, dear listeners, is how all leftist political movements operate. No wonder so many have given up on politics entirely or think it's just plain stupid. And we'll get a wonderful example of that from the following skit, which will both give us a smile and a thought for serious consideration. Back after this. Welcome to the Greendale Community College Presidential Debate. Candidates, if elected, what will you do? Oh, Annie. I'm running on a platform of school improvement. If I'm elected, the black mold will be removed from the east stairwell. The assailant, known only as the ass-crack bandit, will be brought to justice. And I will balance the school's budget by eliminating administrative redundancies. Okay, I'm in the room. Thank you, Ms. Edison, Mr. Winger. Well, that's an important question. And it's important to students like Jeremy, who told me today that he's majoring in astronomy and is supporting two children. It's an important question to Maria, who's a beautiful Latina, born in Nicaragua, working in the cafeteria. What will I do, Dean? Well, these people don't want me to say what I'll do. They want me to do what I'll say. Uh. They love when you shuffle the boards around. Magnitude? Pop, pop! Oh, no. <laughs> Same question. Same answer. Pop, pop! Oh. Pierce Hawthorne, your platform? My platform will be one high enough to push Vicky off to her death. Uh. Vicky? It looks, it looks like, like Vicky's out of the race. Oh, well, then I am, too. I was only here to get back at her for not lending me a pencil. Oh, okay. Wow. Uh, well... Can we get back on track here? I just want to get the black mold out of the east stairwell. I just want to clean up Greendale. Are you saying Greendale is dirty? Oh. Boo! Boo! Well, of course it's dirty. Everyone knows that. I don't, Annie. I think it's clean. I think it's the cleanest school in the entire country. Yeah. Looks like Jeff Winger's really got this thing in the bag. Sure does, Troy. Say what you will about this or that, but people just like the guy. Read my lips. No matter what you're told, we have to clean the mold. No matter what you're told, we have to clean the mold. That's right, people. No, no matter, matter what, what you're told, told we, we have to clean the mold. Come yeah, on. no matter what. This is interesting. Annie Edison has reduced her platform to one issue and turned that issue into a soundbite. And it rhymes. People love it. This election has become a real horse race. According to our polls, 
the campus is almost evenly divided. Now keep in mind, the margin of error on this thing is about 98%. Could be higher. We don't even know how to do margins of error. We talked to two people at a vending machine. Well, I'm being told we're taking a quick break, but stay tuned. They have to stay tuned. It's closed circuit television. Don't know what that means. Cool. And we're out. People are pretty excited about this black mold issue. We'll see. For my closing statement, I'm thinking about smashing a watermelon with a hammer. Jeff, if I admit politics are stupid, will you stop making them stupid? You're gonna split the vote and Starburns is gonna end up president. I'm the only one up here who's trying to get something done. And you deserve to be allowed to do it? You're entitled to be president? The gloves are coming off. You understand me? I have an audio-visual presentation. Wow, I'm shaking. You should be. You should be. All right. Let us resume. Star Burns, we haven't heard from you on this black mold issue. I actually withdraw my candidacy. I fear a political career will shine a negative light on my drug dealing. Thank you. Dean, before this election stops being about the issues, I have a question for my opponents. What's your favorite color? Mine's a three-way tie. Red, white, and blue. Magnitude, response. I think you know, Dean. You guys, you're missing it. Troy, I'm out. Me too. I withdrew my candidacy. Nobody that treats a friend the way that I did is fit to represent the student body. Uh, yeah, I know you're both out. I'm saying you're missing it. It's the political showdown of the century. You should have stayed in the running. You're the only real candidate. No, I was just another jerk trying to win a contest. You were right the whole time. I just couldn't admit it until I saw you running away crying. Yay. Resolved, then. Resolved. When we seek to destroy others, we often hurt ourselves. Because it is the self that wants to be destroyed. Pierce, you're not usually so poignant. Well, Vicky finally lent me your pencil. Oh my god, Pierce, go to the health center! Yeah. Well, we finally reached the end of Election Road. Arguments have been made, pots have been popped, hearts have been stirred, preps broken. The only thing that remains is to tally the vote in this matchup between the youthful, charismatic magnitude and Leonard, the human raisin Rodriguez. Two men fighting for the same piece of earth. One recently born, one soon to die. A competition reflecting the pointlessness of life. Pull up, Abed, you're in a nosedive. I'm being told now that Dean Pelton is prepared to announce a winner. We take you now live to Across the Room. Okay, here we go. Thank you, Sergio. With 11 votes cast, 11, come on, people. The landslide winner of the student election with seven votes is South Park. Okay, you know what? I seem to recall this is why we abolished student government in the first place. This is exactly what happened 10 years ago. Well, there you have it. In a shocking write and upset, the Comedy Central cartoon series South Park has been elected president of the Greendale student body. Not that shocking to me. I voted for it. For real? Mm -hmm. Me too. Oh, we can never stop being friends. 
As the confetti gets swept away and we begin gearing up for next year's election, for GCTV, I'm Abed Nadir saying, did you know you can make napalm out of common dish soap and cat food? What? Why would you say that, hmm? You know, your comments, Bob, about Justin Trudeau made me think that he is an empty vessel and just how much he disrespects uh, values and the membership because his actions, if you recall, he'd go to a, um, a mosque mm-hmm. and he'd wear the garb of a Muslim and he'd pray as a Muslim would pray and he'd go to a Sikh temple and he'd wear the garb of a Sikh and he would pray in front of the cameras as a Sikh would and he'd go to a Catholic church and he would pray in that Catholic church as any Catholic would. Well, you know, a lot of people would just take that as a leader who's making sure all people are included. Yeah, but then he'd walk down the streets of Toronto with people who are smoking pot and are beer-breasted women taking selfies with him and then he's a man of the people and a hippie. He is an empty vessel. And you know something? That, to me, indicates that he has no respect for his, his own identity as a politician. Is a he lot- is everybody at once, and yet he is nobody. There's certainly a lack of sincerity there, that's for sure. Yes. But I have to tell you, for anyone wondering how and why someone like Trudeau can get away with his juvenile and immature political views, wonder no longer as we present yet another exhibit in the chronicle of our increasing democratic deficit namely of knowledge about democracy. And that ran in this weekend's um, London Free Press on Saturday. Uh, you know, Goldwyn Emerson, who writes a lot of columns in the, in the uh, co- commentary section, special to Post Media Network. And he, head, the heading, headline reads, Democracy Demands Equality. And he begins with talking about humanism, and humanists uphold the broadest application of democratic principles in human relationships. What does that mean, the broadest application? And he talks about how there are many different ways of practicing democracy. Oh, by the way, he also points out that democratic, from its Greek origins, means people rule or people power, which I'll get into a little later. And uh, that there are different ways of practicing democracy, including the People's Democratic Republic of China that explains that they're democratic too, but they just have a hierarchy of democracy within their party system, and that's how you get to the top. And it's a democratic process. And he says, uh, for them, democracy is seen as, as having its origin starting from ordinary citizens and working its way upward to the next highest level, etc., etc., and in Canada, he says, many people believe the best way to, pr- to practice democracy is to vote. The ethic underlying a good democracy, he says, is the opinions of, is the opinions of each individual citizen are valued equally and all votes count equally. I guess he means, is that the opinions are all counted equally? And he says, We're, we are all of equal democratic worth. And then he concludes, and I'm just skimming through the article here, while voting is an important part of democracy, respect for dignity, equality, and humanness for all citizens is also important to the success of democracy. In conclusion, humanists uphold the broadest application of democracy. Well, good for him. (laughs) I don't know what he's saying there, because I didn't get a message out of that. What I got was a lot of contradictions and misunderstandings. One of them is democracy as the power of the people. People rule or people power. This does not mean the same as majority rule, which people are suggesting. People rule is not majority rule. It does not mean that some people get to rule others. Yet this is exactly what the majority rule is all about, which is why majority rule is not the essential of democracy, and yet everything discussed here is in that context. 
People power, if you're serious people power, means that the people govern themselves as individuals. They have power over themselves. Peter doesn't get to rule Paul, though. And Paul doesn't get to rule Peter. That's not what people power is about. How can that be considered democratic? Yet that's the fundamental way people view democracy, as some ruling others. We, have, we haven't got past that point yet. We're not even past the Magna Carta, for heaven's sakes, in our mentality. But to put it another way, yeah. democracy means that the rulers are subject to the same laws as everybody else. Yes, and that's just one aspect of it. From just the one. people, you know, the people, they have rule of themselves. No one rules mm. them. So majority rule can be an operative principle, but only after the truly democratic process has taken place. Trudeau wants to dispense with democratic process and replace it with majority rule alone. This is the perfect way for him to do just about anything he wants to do, and in the process, avoid accountability. Because after all, he's just people's voice, just doing what the people say, and that's what every dictator and demagogue has done. Uh, you know, the democracy of China is a majority rule system, where to be among the majority, you must first be a communist. And then as a member of that majority, you get to rule the minority. And this is not democracy by a long shot. It's merely dictatorship using the majority vote process as an operative principle. And maybe that's why Trudeau cited China as one of his great examples of countries that have great governments. Before he he admires communist China. Yeah. Because <laughs> they can get things done. Yeah, they get things done. Sure they can. You can get a lot of things done at the point of a gun, and that's the philosophy of such people. Then here's the next statement from Emerson. Um, Mr. Goldwyn, in Canada, many believe the best way to practice democracy is to vote, end quote. Well, some may believe that, but they would be wrong. <laughs> Voting is merely part of the majority decision process, and the issues that voters get to vote on are not picked by the voters themselves as individuals. The issues are determined by a majority vote process going through various other venting systems, and that's done through political parties, which are formed of people who have decided to get involved in the political process at the point where it actually matters and where you can make a difference. A party that allows anyone in for free is a party in which the freebies are not members, nor do they have any say as individuals within the actual decision-making process. So Trudeau's plan for governance would be, you know, even at best, would be an eternal referendum in which the winners would always be the few who get to frame the referendum question. Yes or no? Do we get, do we get more power or do we get more power? <laughs> right? So that, that's, you know, and this idea, we are all of equal democratic worth, end quote. No, we are not. Many members of a democracy are worthless, and some are even dangerous because they support policies that threaten life, liberty, and property without even thinking about it. Since even in the process, or even the process of due consideration, it's been removed from the voting process. And this is another reason you have to have political parties. One person, one vote is not a statement about democratic worth. It's just an admission of democratic worthlessness if you insist on looking at your vote in this manner. If you've only got two candidates to vote for, then your democratic worth is A or B. <laughs> That's it. At least as far as your vote will go. It won't take you any further than A or B. That's what you get. Doesn't matter. All the discussion before no longer matters. However, as if as an individual or as a new political party, you increase the democratic choice from two to three, then your democratic worth has risen dramatically. It's always wise to remember that among the inherent goals of all left-wing thinking is the destruction of value and of worth itself. If everything's equal, then nothing can have value. I mean, why should you marry Sue instead of Jane? They're both the same. Who cares, right? 
And finally, the ethic underlying a good democracy is the opinions of each citizen are valued equally and all votes count equal, he writes. Well, there's nothing ethical about one person, one vote. <laughs> in fact, it could be more ethical to give informed voters on a given issue two or three votes or, and give the uninformed voters only half a vote. That would be more ethical. What makes it ethical is that everyone agree to it in advance. Right? And as long as everyone agrees to the system of voting in advance, that gives it their consent, and however the vote turns out is ethical. That's the rules. And you, you know, the consent has already taken place. And ethics is about consent. And, and most of the things voters vote, vote for, <laughs> here's the joke, are about things that would violate consent. Right? How you vote, or even whether you vote, is not about ethics. When numbers and majorities are regarded as, as a moral license to do something, that's when ethics has been tossed out of the democratic consideration entirely. And um, oh, actually, one more statement he has here I wanted to address. Quote, while voting is an important part of democracy, respect for dignity, equality, and humanness of all citizens is also important to the success of democracy. End quote. One of those fuzzy statements that drives me nuts. You know, why writers like Emerson find it so difficult to find the clear, definitive words they would have to use to describe this fuzzy condition, it tells me something. It's kind of, it's kind of like a telltale sign of some sort of insincerity or, or simply their ignorance of what respect for dignity, equality, and humanness is. What does it mean in concrete terms when you're talking in politics? Equality can only mean equality before and under the law. But today's translation says that equality means economic and socially equal despite the in inequalities that demands before the law and be under the law. Humanness, if differentiated from other kinds of ness, <laughs> like animalness or religiousness or nothingness, would mean rationality and the use of reason to determine one's choices, not to rely on majority views or some other quite possibly irrational human beings. That's not human at all. And dignity would mean that everyone's entitled to use force in the defense of their own life, liberty, and property. That's what dignity is all about. None of these terms, as I've defined them here, are even part of any so-called democratic discussion. And uh, because our democratic discussion is a socialist monologue in which every individual must, in the end, become everyone, every other individual's opponent or enemy. That's where they're pushing us, Robert. Don't you think? I do. And so... You know, all I can say at this point is welcome to 2016's Brave New World of Democracy. Now on a clear path back to the sad old, old world of socialism, fascism, and communism, where majorities always rule and no one governs, where history constantly repeats and nothing is really new. Because the true new, freedom and capitalism, are what is being abandoned by our new Democrats of all political stripes. Right now, we must govern ourselves, Robert, using the time running out on the clock as our guide to wrap up for another day. <laughs> so be sure to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right, all right. Places, everybody. <coughs> all right, okay. This is everybody. Places, everybody! Quiet! Very bright, very happy. All right, roll them. Action! Uh.
<laughs> Happy prisoners, glad to be in the wonderful world of the Third Reich. <laughs> oh, for me. And there's more to come, Commandant, as the prisoners express through their own simple handicraft their gratitude for your hospitality and political guidance. Oh, how wonderful! <laughs> Crafted out of their own mess tins. A scale replica of the battleship Bismarck. Oh, the unsinkable Bismarck! <laughs> cut, cut! <laughs>